Well, you all can have a seat. We gather uh, as Christians each and every year. Uh, this week is Holy Week. Uh, perhaps no day more well-known than Easter, uh, but arguably no day more significant than Good Friday. And I was astonished this morning when I woke up and I read my uh, normal news cycles and was just seeing all the different things writing and there was uh, op-ed after op-ed uh, condemning Christians this day. Why do they call it Good Friday? They just celebrate a God who kills. Uh, and yet, as we gather as God's people, we don't remember this evening a God who kills, but a God who saves through uh, the death of his very own son. And so as his people, we do call it Good Friday because it's a good Friday for us indeed. We don't receive what we deserve because of what happened on this day so many years ago. This evening, we will be reading through a majority of John 18 and 19. Uh, this entire kind of passion story is uh, we look at the arrest of Jesus leading all the way up until he utters his last words, it is finished, in John chapter 19. And so if you'll join me, we'll start by reading the first 11 verses of John chapter 18 together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those, whom you have, you, those of whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather as your people this evening. Lord, it is a good Friday. It's a day when we are filled with conflicting emotions, a day of great joy for we receive our deliverance, but a day also of great mourning because we see the true cost of our own salvation and the cost of our sin. And so, Father, as we look at your words here in John 18 and 19, as we meditate on this event and what has happened, Lord, we pray we would not make light of the price you paid, of the gift that you have given in giving up your own son that we might be saved. Father, may we see and draw near to the Savior who never flees, who stands firm despite the abandonment of all those that are around him. Lord, might we receive and see the faith of Jesus and in turn begin to have that same faith in our life, Lord. Amen.
The moment has arrived. The time is at hand as we began John's gospel so many months ago. The impending death of Jesus is here. He finishes chapter 17, this morning, this dinner, this discourse that we've been going over at church the last uh, month and a half, and he sets out late, late at night, perhaps even almost early in the morning with his disciples to go and pray in the garden one last time and await his arrest. While he's there, and of course Jesus knows this, Judas arrives with a band of soldiers and the temple police. He's going to get him. The tension in the air is felt and expressed when Jesus reveals himself to them. This large contingency arrives in verse 4 here, and Jesus responds to them, Who are you looking for? When they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responds with a simple but powerful, I am he. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you know the power that this word, I am, even holds. And so at the response of Jesus in these words, something very strange happens. This army, this band of soldiers with torches and weapons come before this man who has no weapons on him, who simply says, I am he, and how do they respond? They fall back and fall down. We see here the tension in the air. These guards and soldiers approach this man because they think of him like a god. They fall down, perhaps expecting a great battle with some half-man, half-divine beast of a creature. But that's not the case. Jesus simply negotiates the safe passage of his disciples and goes with these men. That doesn't happen before a small scuffle breaks out between the servant of the high priest and one of his most trusted disciples, Peter. But Jesus' rebuke of Peter here at the very end in verse 11 sets the tone for chapters 18 and 19. Jesus looks calmly at Peter, says, put your sword away. It's not needed. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? In other words, he looks at Peter and says, Peter, this is the plan of God and his will for my life. Don't oppose the work of God. I go willingly and I will go alone. I will drink the cup that God has given to me. And the cup that we see is the cup of wrath that's to be poured out. Jesus accepts this mission, leaves the disciples under the arrest of this band, and heads in uh, to face his multiple trials. And this evening as we gather as we meditate and we look at these chapters in verses 18 and 19, John means for us to see the total abandonment of Christ, the one who is left alone, and see that in comparison with the faithfulness of Jesus despite the unfaithfulness of everybody and everything around him. In the midst of his betrayal, Jesus stands alone to complete his work. He will be faithful to God and the work before him despite being abandoned by the people and the institutions that surround him. This is the will of God, and he goes willingly. And on the cross, as we're going to get to in just a little while this evening, we are meant to see tonight, as we read John's gospel over and over, God the Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority and power in the entire universe, go willingly and alone to die for the sake of his people. He is abandoned, but
but that will not deter his mission. And so as he leaves under arrest from the garden, he arrives at a temple trial. This happens under the cover of night, right? If you want to have a sham trial and make sure everybody knows it's a sham trial, put somebody under trial at 2 a.m. Everybody else is sleeping. Jesus is arrested and tried before the Jewish leaders. John makes it abundantly clear just how much of a sham this is when he reminds us in verse 14 that the high priest has already decided what should happen to Jesus. This man had already said, it's better that one man should die for many. The result was fixed. And Jesus goes to this trial knowing that. But here in this section in verse 18, and we're not going to read all of this right now, but we see something very quickly happening. There's a bouncing back and forth. Jesus before the trial, Peter before other people. And this comparison, again, is helping to set the tone for us. Jesus stands and answers questions, unwavering for a trial he knows is fixed, that his answers will do nothing to deter the outcome, while Peter waits in the courtyard. His boldness in wielding a knife against those that came to arrest Jesus, perhaps just an hour before, has turned into somebody slinking through the shadows, hoping to be totally unrecognized and unnoticed. He's no longer confident as he stands beside his Lord Jesus. Instead, he's full of fear, no longer comforted by his Savior. And if we're honest, this is somewhat understandable. He did just chop a guy's ear off. If Jesus is arrested, Peter no doubt is thinking, they're probably going to come for me. I'm the only one that wielded a weapon. I'm the only one that has done something that might also deserve some type of capital punishment. But uh, uh, Peter is full of fear. This is all happening as the the tribunal continues to interrogate Jesus. They finally end here in 18 with their judgment of guilt. But they're unable to carry out the execution of Jesus because the Roman government has taken that authority away from them. And so they begin to shift and bring Jesus to the ruler of the city, a man named Pontius Pilate. And again, this is all happening under the cover of night, and we see this so clearly. Because in Peter's third denial here in chapter 18, what happens right after his denial? The rooster crows, Friday morning has cracked. Jesus arrested early in the morning, The trial ends before sunlight even comes up. The rooster crows. Jesus is found guilty and goes to stand before Pontius Pilate. But here with Peter, we see the very first thing I think we should notice as we read this. Jesus has denied nothing. In the beginning of chapter 18 here, Peter has done nothing but deny. Jesus never once flinches from his accusation and what he says he's come to do. Peter does nothing but slink back and say, I don't know him, that's not me. You must be confused. The Savior stands abandoned and alone. But the faithfulness of Christ, and we're so thankful for this, is not dependent on the faithfulness of the people that he watches. The faithfulness of Jesus is not dependent on the faithfulness of anybody else. And it's an amazing encouragement to us that Jesus never once flinches in the face of all of this opposition. There's nothing that can rattle him, intimidate him, or cause him to cower in fear. Calmly, boldly, powerfully, he never shrinks back from the truth. He knows what awaits him. He knows the cup that is coming, and he will consume it all for the sake of his people. 
But I want us to pick up reading here in verse 33. As this scene shifts before the trial, uh, from the trial with Jewish leaders to this man, Pontius Pilate. And we're going to read quite a large section here. Um, But open up your Bibles, continue to read with us. Verse 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called to Jesus. And he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took him and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin." From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered them over to him 
to be crucified. The very last thing we begin to see as the scene shifts to this Roman court before Pilate is the Jewish leader's pathetic precautions to avoid ritual contamination. They bring him to Pilate to face trial in this Roman area, but they refuse to enter this home, this room, because according to Jewish law, if they enter in the home of a Gentile, they will be unclean. The very men who bring Jesus to be crucified, the men who are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him alone, who is the true Passover, refuses to be ceremonially unclean. The irony here in John is thick and almost suffocating to see. But by the end of this section, in 1915, we see just how much the hearts of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people, the people indeed who were called God's own people, have hardened their hearts and abandoned him. We must know that Pilate is no friend to these Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders are not friends of Pilate. They don't like him, and he doesn't like them. The Jewish people were known to be a rebellious and revolting people. They did not like the order of the Roman Empire. They would be happy to have a revolt and free themselves from Roman rule if it benefited them. But such is their hatred towards Jesus, so committed are they to the plan set forth months prior that they will work with those they consider enemies to see Jesus killed. Pilate, on his end, is antagonistic towards these Jewish leaders the entire time. He's clearly distrusting of their motives. He knows that unless Jesus was a threat to these religious leaders, they would not care if he was a threat to Rome. The only reason they bring Jesus before uh, Pilate is because it serves their purposes. And so here we see the charge that the Jewish leaders lay is twofold. They need to convict him of something, and so what are they going to do? Well, under the Jewish law, they're going to convict him for claiming divinity, for claiming to be the Son of God, blaspheming God. But under the Roman law, to get a crucifixion granted by the Romans, they claim that Jesus must be killed because he's a threat to Caesar. This man says he's a king. He's trying to usurp Caesar's throne. Pilate's entire trial will then be the investigation of this latter claim. He cannot execute him or will not execute him on religious matters, but he must if he's a true threat to Caesar. And in this section, we see just how lost these religious leaders have become. The Jewish expectation, the Davidic Messiah, the one that they have been eagerly waiting for for hundreds of years, was necessarily the promised king of Israel. They knew that their Messiah, their Savior, would be known as a king. And indeed, if we go all the way back to the very first part of John, John 1, 49, the man Nathaniel answers him and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the king of Israel. The Jewish people expected a kingly Messiah. And yet here, they are going to reject this king. The Messiah was necessarily, according to Jewish law, the king of Israel. But in this moment, the people of Israel instead doubled down on their loyalty to Rome. 
we see that they truly do not want a Messiah. Instead, they are content to remain enslaved to Rome. They want Jesus dead. Jesus' responses to Pilate in questioning him is that it's his ultimate purpose and destiny do not lie in the hands of Pilate. He doesn't really care what Pilate thinks because he knows the outcome is secured. So much so that he, in 18, chapter 18, towards the end, talks about truth. He says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And like Pilate, we probably hear those words and ask, what is truth? What is Jesus talking about here? Truth here, though, is not a fact or, or statement without error, like we would use the word truth. That's the truth. Truth here, in the book of John, and according to Jesus, is the self-disclosure of God in his Son. God is the ultimate form of truth, and therefore Jesus is the full disclosure, the revelation of the truth of God. Through Jesus, the truth about salvation and judgment is revealed, and as D.A. Carson puts it, this is the principal way of making subjects and exercising his kingship, the cross. But Jesus is not just alone, he's also without guilt. Three times here, 1838, 1904, 196, in this exchange with Pilate, Pilate declares Jesus guiltless. I find no guilt in him. But Jesus is the truth, the revelation of God's plan to redeem his people. And it's only through this truth that people will be saved. And there's not anyone or anything that can stop this, not the people, not Pilate. Jesus will march forward and drink the cup. Regardless, Pilate comes to the conclusion that Jesus is not ultimately a threat to Caesar and works continuously to avoid the shedding of the blood of this man. And so first, he offers a trade. The one who you claim to be your Messiah, the King of the Jews, do you want him set free, or the murderer Barabbas? Jesus is the one who liberates. Barabbas is the one who has caused rioting and brought not liberation, but oppression upon the Jewish people. But they shout, give us Barabbas. So Pilate tries to appease the crowd by giving Jesus a good beating. Well, if maybe if I just beat this guy a little bit and then try to release him, the crowd will be satisfied. But instead, he beats him, puts on this crown, this robe, and brings him out, thinking this punishment might be enough. But the crowd grows more and more incensed with every declaration by Pilate that he finds this man innocent. The crowd wants him dead. In a final attempt to avoid the death sentence, Pilate asked these people plainly in verse 15, shall I crucify your king? The most blasphemous statement of all time is, is listed. The people shout, we have no king but Caesar. Kill him. The bloodlust of the people show just how much they have abandoned God. They demand the life of the Messiah and reveal their allegiance to Rome rather than to God. The Old Testament makes it clear time and time again that the only true king of Israel is God. And yet here these people pledge their allegiance not to God, but to Caesar. They've been waiting for a Messiah, a man in the king, uh, a king of the line of David, the men who were legitimate only because they were vassal kings serving under God and bound by their covenant to God. But they reveal, we don't want that guy. Kill him. 
by insisting they have no king but Caesar, they're abandoning their messianic hope and disowning the kingship of God himself. They will fulfill the words spoken earlier in John 1.11 when John opens up his gospel. Verses 9 through 11, I should say. John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus denied nothing. And yet as the story continues, we see now here, not only has Peter denied and abandoned Jesus, his own people have as well. He's alone, without guilt, and yet will still drink the cup and complete the work that the Father has given to him. John is calling to us as we read chapters 18 and 19 to see just how much everybody has turned their back on Jesus. This man alone will trudge faithfully towards the cross. He's God in the flesh, yet abandoned and rejected by all. His friends left him. The justice system failed him. His own people abandoning him. He goes to die all alone, but he goes for the sake of his people. John 19, 16. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the, cross of Jesus, uh, by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave his spirit. The son of God killed on that cross, alone, rejected, mocked, 
beaten, meant to endure shame and pain, all so that he might finish his mission. This evening on Good Friday, we're meant to look at these words of John, see the rejected Savior, and see the depth of what he's done to rescue us. He's drank the cup reserved for us. The judgment of God toward the sin of his people falls on Christ. Jesus goes to the cross willingly and alone to complete the work of God and redeem his people. This evening, we're invited to pledge our loyalty to God, to accept Christ as the Savior, to see the depth of his love manifested in the depth of his suffering on your behalf, on behalf of his people. And so this evening, if you have not done so, turn to him and accept life. Our faith is costly. It was purchased at a great price. May we never lose sight of that, of the pain, of the agony, of the sacrifice that was paid that we might be called sons and daughters of God Most High. It's Good Friday because without this event, we are left dead to sin and trapped in bondage. Our only destiny would be destruction. And so I want to finish this uh, evening by reading the opening verse and chorus of a song we sing time to time here at CBC. Uh, titled, "Thank You, uh, Jesus, Thank You. The mystery of the cross, I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now, you're seated, now we're seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. What a beautiful message we have on Good Friday. The Son of God the mysteries of the cross, why he would ever give his life for us. But we read it and we see the truth of it and we rejoice in the Savior. 